So continuing on this morning in the book of Ephesians, whoops, we're looking in the very first chapter, and we're looking in verses, uh, this morning we're looking at verses 7 through 14, but I'm going to go back and read starting at chapter, or verse 3 in chapter 1, just it is a one long run-on sentence from verse 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's open in prayer. Father, there's a lot of words there, and it's like a, a crescendo. It's like one item of praise upon another. Paul trying to give us the pretty much the entire history of salvation and past and what's going on presently and what's to come in the future, all in a few verses. And I thank you, Father, that it is, it's praise, it's thanksgiving. It's also going behind the curtain a little bit so we can see more of what you've been about since the time of creation, and even before. So, Father, please open our eyes this morning. Help us to understand more of who you are, a deeper appreciation of just all that we have in Christ. Change us, Father. We need changing. Help us, Father, to be able to see you behind every event, behind every situation that occurs in our life, to see your hand of mercy and grace, which you lavish upon us. Just thank you, Father, for doing these things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story that circulated around of a, it's probably a rural legend, uh, of a man in the late 1800s who had fallen on hard times. He lost his job, he didn't have hardly any savings, and he decided to leave snowy western Pennsylvania and get on a riverboat in Ohio and travel down the Ohio all the way to New Orleans. And he wanted to do it before winter set in, of course. So he wanted to start a whole new life in New Orleans where it was warm and where there probably was work. So he scraped together all the money that he had, and he bought a ticket for the steamboat. And he didn't have a whole lot of money left over to go to the dining hall on the steamboat. So he went off to a uh, little store, and he bought hardtack, pilot bread to some of you, and cheese, and kept it with his stuff. And when mealtimes would come, everybody else would go into the dining hall to eat, and he would take his little snacks, and he would go out and sit on the deck outside, and he would eat his crackers and cheese. Well, after a few days, one of the men on the boat saw him, one of the men on the way to the dining hall, and said, 
well, friend, would you join me at my table today? And he said, well, thank you, but I can't eat in there. Well, why not? Well, I don't have any money. So there's no point in going in just embarrassing myself in front of all those people who are, who are eating. So, so I'm going outside and eat some food that I brought along with me. And the man said, look at your ticket more closely. He said, well, what do you mean? Look at your ticket. And sure enough, at the bottom of the ticket was written, all meals included. Now, it wasn't that he didn't have the right to go into the dining hall. He had every right to go into the dining hall and partake of that fine food, but he was starving because he didn't realize what he already possessed. That's how I feel when I consider these opening verses of Ephesians 1. I don't think any of us fully realize all that God the Father has for us in Christ. The spiritual blessings that we explored you know, last week in the first part of Paul's celebration of praise in this first chapter of Ephesians are not reserved just for the super-Christians, whoever they are. They're not blessings that are reserved for just a secret few that have achieved some level of personal holiness or maybe had some kind of a second experience. It's addressed to all the Christians in a city of over 100,000 people. So these blessings really are for everyone who is in Jesus Christ. But so many of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ fail to fully appreciate all these blessings that have been poured out upon us, heaped upon us, lavished upon us. One of the things I find intriguing is that the commentators have looked at the book of Ephesians and they said, why does this letter seem so impersonal? Why is it so impersonal? I mean, there's no personal greetings. There's no dealing with hot-button issues, like in Galatians. Remember, after our look into the letter of Galatians, where Paul uses very strong language to combat false teachers, when you read Ephesians, you wonder, is this the same Paul? Well, keep in mind, though, that he spent three years with his people. This was the longest time he ever spent in one place with one church. And he knows these people. In Acts chapter 20, Paul meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus as he's traveling back through Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. And he tells them that it was really hard work leading the church and getting it started, but he says, I did not shrink from, de shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. He knew these people. He knows what they need to hear. He knows what they need to apply to themselves to help them to grow more deeply into Christ. So as a result, this letter reads like a New Testament psalm. It concentrates on praise and prayer. If you had a chance to look at that offline session that Randy Reed and I did, you'll recognize that Ephesus faced a whole lot of serious problems, not just in Paul's time, but all the way through up until the post-apostolic time. One of the serious problems was they had no New Testament. They had no written record, really, of who Jesus was. It was all from teachings from the apostles, especially Paul. So I think he wrote Ephesians the way he did to these people to confirm what he taught them so that they would be reminded of eternal truths. Because if you know truth, it's a whole lot easier to recognize error by comparison. So I think what he's doing is giving them kind of the, the whole load of hay as far as truth is concerned, so they'll be better, able to, better equipped to be able to combat all the heresies and the uh, evil things that are becoming their way. So with that in mind, as we continue through this, uh, the rest of this prayer, this uh, opening section in, in uh, the book, I'm going to point out some of the errors that we know that existed in the church at Ephesus. 
and, and how the truth about God that we're going to see here counters those errors. I'm not going to hit them all, but, I'm going to hit there, but there's some that were very, very tempting to the Christians who were under constant pressure to conform to the culture or lose their homes, lose their job, potentially even lose their families and maybe their life. This was serious business for them, kind of academic for us in most cases, although that may change rapidly here quickly, but we don't know. So last week when we looked at those first six verses in Ephesians 1, we saw that verses 3 through 14 are really a run-on sentence of a of praise-filled a praise-filled celebration of what God has done and what God continues to do. And, and we're the beneficiaries of God's spiritual blessings because as Christians we are in Christ. Now in Christ is a key phrase that unlocks Paul's writings, but especially here in the letter to the church at Ephesus. Verse 3 tells us that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So spiritual blessings, as we looked at last week, really are, are spirit, special favors bestowed on every believer by God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Now think of it. We're enthroned with Jesus, the Lord of the universe, in the unseen universe behind what we experience with our five senses. There's something bigger and deeper that we can even see and understand ourselves. Because physically we're here on earth, but spiritually, he says, in the deepest parts of our being, he says we live in the heavenly realms where Jesus lives. And Paul calls us really to immerse ourselves in that truth and celebrate. So we looked last week, the, you know, the, first, the first spiritual blessing is the celebration of election, which Paul sees as a great comfort to us. God chose each one of you who named the name of Christ. He chose you by name before he even started to create the universe. That's how much you mean to him. And it's not as if he needs anything. God needs nothing. He chose you of his own unrestrained love, grace, and mercy before you were even born and before he even sent his son Jesus to die in your place. When God chose you, Paul tells us he had a purpose. And so he predestined that purpose to come about, namely, that you would become a child of God, that you'd be part of his forever family, that you'd become an heir of all that God owns, a joint heir with his son, that you would take on the family likeness. And before you existed in space and time, he set his love on you so that your love to him is simply a response of his prior love toward you. He didn't choose you because of something that you would do. He didn't look down the quarters of time and see that you're going to be a good person so you, and you would make a choice for him. He responded to the gospel because of something that he set in motion before the foundation of the world. It's his choice alone, and it, which is the prerogative of, of the creator of all things. Isaiah 64, verse 8, puts it this way. O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So his purpose in our adoption as sons and daughters is to make us, he says, holy and blameless. But that's only a small part of his intent. So the purpose of his will is the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in verse 6. And we get to the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 7, we're going to see that this glorious grace that he's talking about here means 
the immeasurable riches of his grace. Grace that can't be measured. And he also identifies Jesus here as the beloved. Well, why that term? Well, I think this is an intera- just a, a glimpse into the interaction, the inner workings, really, of the Trinity. Each person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has infinite love for the other members of the Trinity. And Jesus is identified here as the beloved just to show the depth of that perfect, self-giving love that exists within God himself. So their interaction before creation began in infinity past in joyful praise of each other. Which sounds strange to us because you know our praise of another person is tinged with selfishness and pride. And it's limited. But God's perfections and his beauty are, are infinite. There's complete love and delight existing between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he says that that joy and delight overflows to us. And it's the source of these immeasurable riches of the grace we experience as we're in Christ. It's an overflow of the love within the the Trinity itself. That's how big it is. But we look at one of the things that the Ephesian church was facing, one of the features of pagan culture was how their understanding of gods, small small g, permeate everything. And their gods, if you ever read Greek mythology or uh, Percy Jackson, their gods were fickle, unpredictable, and they only had their own self-interest in mind no matter what they did. And part of the people's understanding during that time in their culture was their reliance on luck. Their destiny was in the hands of some kind of an impersonal force. Even their gods couldn't control the future. They too were subject to fate, events out of their control. So to consider that the true God is sovereign over everything, is truly in control of all events, has a plan from before the world began, and is rational and is approachable, is truth that the Christians really need to know if they're going to combat this serious pagan idolatry that permeates their entire culture. Well, now that we know why we celebrate the blessing of the election, we can move on to the next spiritual blessing we celebrate, which is the celebration of redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So it's okay that God chooses. He chooses us. But how does he make that choosing come to pass in our lives? Because unless God gives us new life, we're in serious trouble. Because without his intervention, the very first part of verse of Ephesians 2 says, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not just a little bit of life, we are dead. So God's solution then to change us as unholy and blameworthy people into holy and blameless is bound up in the meaning of what this word redemption means. And basically redemption means a release by payment or freedom by paying a ransom. Well, why is redemption good news? because it provides forgiveness, he says, of our trespasses. Forgiveness means deliverance from God's just punishment, which is his wrath in response to our sins. God is holy, and he can't just pretend that our cosmic treason, our sin, is no big deal. His justice demands that something be done. Now, trespasses is a term that refers to our guilt over past sins, for one thing, 
And we already know from the one song, song we sang this morning that our past sins have been forgiven in Christ. In Colossians 1, where we're going soon, and are going through the New Testament here, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we stand forgiven before God through Christ, in Christ. But God's redemption, his forgiveness of our trespasses, also carries forward into the future as well. He will redeem our very bodies. A future day of full freedom is coming. Romans 8.23 puts it this way. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So in the fullness of time, when things are just right, when things have come to their completion, God's going to transform our bodies into glorious ones similar to the one that the Lord Jesus has. No more cancer. No more arthritis. No more getting old and tripping while climbing upstairs. <laughs> he's going to remove, he's going to remove all present and future defects in our body and soul in the resurrection when our redemption is complete. But his redemption is also operative right now in the present. He says in uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, tells us, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he's actually in the process of redeeming us now from the futile, sinful ways of life, from the ongoing power of sin. So we're redeemed not only from the penalty of sin, but we're also being redeemed from its pollution and its enslaving power. Well, how did God bring about our redemption? He tells us that the blood of Christ is what secures our, our past, present, and our future redemption. Well, how does that work? Romans 3, 23 and 24. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Well, that clears it right up. So we see once again that it's in Christ that we're redeemed, that we're released from sin by payment. Well, who got paid? Satan? That's, border, that's borderline blasphemy. God owes him nothing, and neither do we. Who's the offended party? God is always the most offended party in any sin. God is the one whose wrath needs to be satisfied. Way back in the old days, uh, King David was confronted by God to the prophet Nathan for his sins involving adultery with Bathsheba. And David repented before God, and he wrote, one of the things that he wrote was Psalm 51, kind of an expression of God's grace to him who deserved death for his sin. In verse 4 in Psalm 51, he writes this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Does that verse bother you? It should. <laughs> David sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, her husband, whom he had murdered, 
He sinned against Joab, the head of the army, who he told had to leave Uriah out there to be killed by the enemy. He sinned against the troops who told he had told had to fall back and abandon one of their best soldiers. He sinned against the people of Israel by violating their trust in individuals supposed to be living under the control of God, this sacred trust. Matter of fact, I can't think of anyone at that time who was not sinned against by what David did. But he says to God against you, you only have I sinned. That's about the clearest admission I can find that God was the most offended party in David's sin. It had repercussions, but God was the one who was most offended. His, his glory, his reputation suffered the most damage. So in order for us to be redeemed from sin, God must find a way to maintain his holiness and yet punish our sin or else run a one-way trip to hell. Paul's word for what God did is propitiation. Now, propitiation is a payment. It's a payment to God to satisfy his justice and to remove his disfavor, to remove his wrath. So Jesus' blood, his life as a completely innocent sacrifice on the cross, is a propitiation put forward by God to turn away God's wrath. Once again, it it's all on God. I remember that song that we sing sometimes. He quenched his father's flaming sword in his own vital flood. In Colossians 2, we read this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing up through the hands and feet of Jesus. This describes, I think, the immeasurable riches of his grace, his overflowing life and joy to us. Which brings me to one of the heresies that they fought early on, and actually church still continues to fight. It's one that's called docetism. This is a, a very attractive heresy that infiltrated the early church, and it's still around. It allowed that Jesus may have been in some way divine, but it denied his full humanity. I mean, hardcore docetists really taught that Jesus was only a, a phantasm or an illusion, like here, appearing to be human but having no real body at all. Other, other forms taught that Jesus had a heavenly body of some type, but not a real natural body of flesh. And it's closely related to that term you've heard before of Gnosticism, which viewed physical matter as somehow evil, inherently evil, and spiritual substance as being inherently good. So this docetism actually denies the core truths of the gospel, namely the death and resurrection of Christ. And if Jesus didn't have a real body, then he did not really die. And his suffering on the cross was just a mere illusion. And if he had no physical body, he can't have risen from the dead bodily. Because without the actual death and resurrection of Jesus, we have no salvation, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. We're, we're still in our sins, and our faith is futile. And of course, those of would also deny the ascension of Christ, since he had no real body to make the ascent. Which also means that our future resurrection body isn't real either. This is a very attractive heresy that infiltrated the early church. But Jesus is God and man in the same physical form, fully God and fully man. And he's real, 
and his sufferings were real. In Romans 8.32, Paul tells us this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, since God didn't hold back from the hardest action in the entire universe, the killing of his own son's physical body, turning his back on his eternal son, Paul is saying it's going to be really easy at that point for him to bring us into an eternal future with him. It's much easier than what he did with his own son. Well, that brings us to the next spiritual blessing. The celebration of summing up all things in Christ. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So there's a new order coming. I mean, as unflattering as it might be to human ego, the coming of Christ is not only just to save men from their sins. Paul shows here, I think, that man's salvation is not the ultimate purpose of the coming of Christ. God's eternal purpose is the uniting of all things in Christ. So if the corruption and the chaos of all creation commence with the fall of one man, Adam, the care is also to come through one man, Jesus Christ. And our text focuses on that climactic reversal of the fall of Adam and the chaos and the corruption that's brought about. And, and Paul talks about that great reversal as uniting of all things in Christ. That's where God's going. And this plan to sum up all things in Christ was formulated in eternity past. And it's a plan that's only been partially revealed in time. That's why he says that this plan was a mystery, in that it was not revealed in full and it was not understood in the past. When Paul speaks of the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11, he frequently cites Old Testament prophecies as having been fulfilled in Christ and the church. The mystery is that God revealed his plan in parts and pieces in the Old Testament, but progressively. And no one could put them together until they were fulfilled in Christ. The pieces were all there, but nobody had the picture on the jigsaw puzzle box. All we had was a bunch of pieces. But even then, men couldn't really understand it unless God explained it through his apostles. Only then were men able to grasp it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because the prophet spoke of the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah, and how both could be true was a great mystery. It's only after Christ's first coming that we can really see how suffering and glory really fit together beautifully to the glory of God. And so it is with every puzzling piece of those prophecies that spoke of God's purposes in Christ, which didn't seem to fit together to form any one clear picture. But in Christ, all the pieces fit together. The mystery is resolved, and all things, he says, are summed up in him. And we've only seen the beginning of it. Because this means that history is going somewhere. We're not victims of fate, we're not victims of the force or some other impersonal explanation that we have no future. We can be confident that God alone knows how the details fit together. That brings us to the next phrase that he has here. What are these all things in heaven and things on earth that he's going to unite? Well, the work has already begun with God's children. We're already told that believers, us, are all united 
in the body of Christ over which he is the head, which brings believing Jews and believing Gentiles together in one body, which, if you remember from the early part of the book of Acts, is a major miracle. And we're going to see in Ephesians 2 that there was a wall there that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. They had a real issue with hardening of the categories. Paul's going to delve into this more deeply as the book goes on, but he wants to let us know that we all share, Jews and Gentiles, we all share in blessing and election and adoption, grace and redemption and forgiveness and spiritual wisdom all brought together in Christ. He's the, thing that, he's the person that joins us together. Now that we're united together in his own body, Christ has conjoined us with him to God the Father. This is the new order. When God sees us, he sees us in Christ. And the relationship that he has with Christ is mirrored somewhat in now our relationship with the Father as well because we're, with, we're in Christ. That's an amazing relationship when you think about it. The fact that God actually sees us in the same way as he sees his own son, which is part of himself. We have now moved into the area of a different kind of a mystery. And a knot I'm not going to try to untangle. But. but along with this, the universe that, that Christ created and sustains is all going to be ordered under Christ, totally. All things were created through him and for him. Remember, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All redeemed souls, all the universe, all the faithful angelic hosts, everything material, everything spiritual, will be unified in Christ. This is the blessing of the universe. Well, if that weren't enough, he goes on to tell us there's another part of this celebration too. This inheritance that we have in Christ. I think these verses are some of the clearest statements that God's great desire for his people is that we feel secure. We know that we're secure in his love and power. Look at the words that show up. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now we're talking about the ultimate. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So these final four verses that we're going to look at this morning fall into kind of two major divisions. Verse 11 and 12 go together in verses 13 and 14. But they all describe one inheritance in Christ, shared by both Jews and Gentiles, which is the basis of the believer's hope. And verses 11 and 12 really focus on the inheritance of the Jews, he says, who are the first to hope in Christ. And verses 13 and 14 focus on the inheritance to the Gentiles who have responded to the gospel and believed in Christ. So both the Jewish saints and the Gentile saints share the same hope and they share the same inheritance. And the salvation of both groups is for what purpose? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of who he really is. 
So the first, I think, the most important things to see in these three verses is that they begin and end with God's ultimate purpose, which is to glorify himself. There's nothing better in the universe he can do than to glorify himself. That's what, that is his best, and that's what he wants us to do, too, to join in with him in joy in sharing that. In verse 12, he says, We were destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. In verse 14, he has guaranteed our inheritance to the praise of his glory. So the basic fact that you can say about the righteousness of God is that he has an unwavering commitment to his own glory. He has an unwavering commitment to his own glory. Everything he does, he does to heighten the intensity with which his people praise him for his glory and thereby increase our joy. As we praise him for his glory, we're going to find our joy increases because now we're, going, we're experiencing some of those immeasurable riches spilling over from the love within the Trinity itself, which is total joy. So as we experience, as we praise, we're going to experience some of that total joy that overflows into our lives, which is why praise is so key. And the second thing to see is that the people whose inheritance God guarantees, he says, are the people who believe the gospel. He says, you who have believed are sealed. So there's a direct connection between believing God's word and living for the praise of his glory. I mean, one of the greatest ways that we can honor somebody is to trust them. And since God is committed to his own honor above all things, therefore he is utterly committed to those who trust him. And the third thing is, in this section is kind of what you'd expect. Since God does all things for the praise of his glory, and since believing the word magnifies that glory... Therefore, God takes decisive steps to magnify his glory forever. He says he seals the believer with the Holy Spirit and guarantees that we will come into our inheritance, praising his glory. God is so passionately committed to having a people for his own possession who live forever to the praise of his glory that he's not about to let our eternal destiny depend on our feeble powers of willing and doing. He commissions his Holy Spirit to enter our lives and to make us secure forever. So he gives us two great words here to help us secure, uh, to understand how to be secure in God's love and God's power. The word sealed and the word guaranteed. So let's try to unseal the word sealed and look inside. Well, what does it mean when we say that believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, the word sealed gets used at least three different ways that I could find in the New Testament. In Matthew 27, 66, the tomb of Jesus was secured by sealing it and putting guards on it. And in Revelation chapter 20, God throws Satan into a pit and seals it over so he can't escape. So one meaning of sealing is, is locking something up. It's closing it in. Another is found in Romans 4.11 where Abraham's circumcision is called the sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. And in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2, Paul says that his converts are the seal of his apostleship. So the second meaning of sealing is, is giving a sign of authenticity. A signet ring, which you've probably all seen, is a way of actually sealing a document to ensure that you know it's authentic. It's actually from the person that it reports to be. Well, the third meaning is found in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, where the seal of God is put on the forehead 
as God's servants to protect them from the wrath coming upon the world. So what did Paul mean in Ephesians 1.13 when he said that believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit? I think all of the above. Each of those meanings lead to the same basic truth. And if the Spirit seals shut, the point must be that he seals in faith and seals out unbelief and apostasy. If the Spirit seals us as a sign of authenticity, then, it, then he is that sign. It's the Spirit's work in our life, which is God's trademark, our seal. So our, our eternal sonship is real and authentic if we have the Spirit, demonstrated by his fruit. He's the sign of divine reality in our lives. He's God's signet ring on us. Or if the Spirit marks us with God's seal, he protects us from evil forces which won't dare to enter a person bearing the mark of God's own possession. So all three fit. Because however you come at the understanding of this word sealed, it's a message of safety and security in God's love and power. God sends the Holy Spirit as a, as a, as a preserving seal to lock in our faith as an authenticating seal to validate our sonship and as a protecting seal to keep out destructive forces. The point is that God wants us to know that we are secure and safe in his love and his power. The other Paul use, word Paul uses to drive this concept tone is this word guarantee in verse 14. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. When Charlotte and I travel, we try to make phone reservations at an RV park ahead of us once we think we can get there in time. And the person taking the reservation always wants a credit card, even though they say they're not going to charge it until we actually show up, or I guess unless we fail to show up. Well, why the credit card? Because it's a guarantee at some level that we're going to check in at the appointed time before they close. They know that using a credit card to reserve gives them some security that we're going to get there in time or we're going to end up being charged. So then what's God saying to us when he gives us his Holy Spirit and calls him a guarantee or a down payment or earnest money in some cases? He's saying, my great desire for those who believe in me is that you know that you are secure in my love. I have chosen you before the foundation of the world. I have predestined you to be my children forever. I redeemed you by the blood of my son. I put my spirit in you as a seal and as a guarantee. Therefore, you will receive the inheritance and you will praise the glory of my grace forever and ever. He's saying, I want you to feel secure in my love and my power. He's not saying I'm going to promise you an easy life. In fact, he tells Paul through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. And he also doesn't promise he's going to speak to us always in, in soft, dulcet tones either. Sometimes he's going to warn us in love whenever we try to seek security in anything else but him, which is called an idol, which is pretty much the root of all sin. Well, if we think back to another problem that was facing the church in Ephesus, it was the prevalence of magic using special phrases in particular to protect people from evil spirits. And we see this in Acts 19. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers, these are Ephesian people, came 
confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Magic was obviously pretty important. This is just the Christians and it's 50,000 pieces of silver worth of incantations and plates and, and amulets and things like that that they threw into fire. Can you imagine what the rest of the town was like? Well, Ephesia Grammata, which can be translated really as Ephesian words, was one of the most popular magic practices in the ancient world, and you can still see it's around today. And one of the earliest forms of Ephesia Grammata inscriptions were found in the holy site of the Temple of Artemis, which is right by Ephesus. I mean, Greek poets talk about Ephesia Grammata as powerful words that kept evil spirits away. Fear was a major issue in Ephesus, and they tried to manipulate their so-called gods to protect them, to make them secure. But we've already seen how the Lord, the creator and sustainer of all, is the true power, the only one who can really supply true security and peace for his people. Forget the magic. Set the magic to one side, no matter what the pressure is. Jesus, God is saying, I'm going to offer you, I'm offering you full security and full prevention of, of evil from outside forces. You don't have to try to manipulate nature through magic. I'm right here for you. I'll make sure that nothing occurs that's going to interfere with my plans for your long-term future. He's the true power who can provide security for his people, and he's the only one. But we've already seen how the Lord is the true power, the only one who can provide security for his people. So summarizing what Paul Wright wrote, here's what I come up with. Let me say it again. I have chosen you, says the Lord. I have predestined you. I have redeemed you. I have sealed you by my spirit. Your inheritance is sure because I am passionately committed to magnify the glory of my grace in your salvation. If that isn't true security, I don't know what is. Let's pray. This is an amazing passage of scripture, Father, and we've just scratched the surface. But I do thank you that in all the things that we see here, you are the preeminent one. It's all about you. It's all about your glory. It's all about your future plans. It's all about you giving us as the church, essentially as a gift to your son, who in turn is going to take that same gift and give it back to you. We're in the midst of mysteries, Father, that are way beyond our understanding. And yet we see enough here to be able to praise you for the riches of your glory. So, Father, help us to take this seriously to realize just who we are in Christ and all that you have done for us to get us there. Help us, Father, not to take it for granted, not to spurn it, not to substitute the security you have, uh, we have with you, with anything else that might come our way. Just thank you for doing these things because we know it's your will. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.